This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Stan Bush. Hi, this is Stephanie Calvert. This is John Payne. This is Jack Hughes. Hey, everybody, this is Prescott Niles. Hi, I'm Carrie Stevens. Hello, I'm Kofi Baker. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll. I'm your host, Joe Kay, and today our guest is the lead singer, guitarist, and songwriter for the band Triumph, Rick Emmett. Triumph was a very successful rock band in the late 70s and early 80s with huge radio hits like Fight the Good Fight, Hold On, Magic Power, and of course the immortal Lay It on the Line. Lay It on the Line is also the title of Rick's new memoirs. Lay It on the Line, a backstage pass to Rockstar Adventure, Conflict, and Triumph. This book is a very unique approach to the autobiography. It's not your typical Rockstar memoirs, to its credit. Rick shares his stories and experiences, but he also provides valuable insight into songwriting, musicianship, and the music business as a whole. It's a very enjoyable read that gets quite personal at times. So if an autobiography is meant for you to get to know its author, this book succeeds in ways that many others fall short. If you like rock and roll autobiographies, this is absolutely one that you're going to want to check out. In this interview, we discuss his writing process, what other autobiographies he read in preparation for writing his own, and also a very funny story from something that happened at one of his gigs. We also cover two big topics in Triumph's history. First, MTV's impact on the band, and second, their legendary performance on Heavy Metal Day at the 1983 US Festival. And finally, because it's the Halloween season, Rick shares a very interesting and unique recommendation for a song to listen to around this time of year. I'll get right to the point here. This is one of the best interviews we've ever done, so I would like to extend a huge thank you to Rick Emmett for being such a fantastic guest. It was an absolute joy to speak with him, and I think you're really going to enjoy not just this conversation, but the book as well. And I would also like to thank this book's publisher, ECW Press. They've sent guests my way in the past, and every conversation has been excellent. They publish a lot of really good books, so if you're looking for something to read, I would point you to the catalog over at ECW Press. Finally, I'd also like to thank Pantheon Podcasts for including me on their network. 
It's a real honor to be included alongside some of my absolute favorite podcasts, and Pantheon has been producing some very exciting content this year. So definitely take a look at what's going on over at Pantheon's website. And if you'd like to learn more about Rick, you can check out his website, rickemmett.com. And if you want to learn more about Triumph, you can check out their website at triumphmusic.com. You can also find Rick on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And with that, here's my conversation with the author of the new book, Lay It on the Line, a backstage pass to rock star adventure, conflict, and triumph, Rick Emmett. Oh, and happy Halloween. Lay it on the line. I, unfortunately, have never had a chance to see you perform in concert, but I do have a story that I wanted to start with that I think you'll enjoy. Um, in Milwaukee, where I live, uh, every summer we have the big uh, festival, Summerfest. And in 2016, I attended. And in the middle of the day on one of the free stages, um, School of Rock was playing. Are you familiar with School of Rock? It's, it's like a, a foundation where that, that teaches like young, younger kids how to play instruments and sing on stage and kind of develop, you know, young artists. Sure. And it's a very cool group. And we went over to watch them play. And it was a bunch of teenagers kind of cycling through a lot of different classic rock songs. And it was nice, you know, but for most of the show, um, fans were kind of talking amongst themselves. And there's kind of a murmur over as the kids were playing. But near the end of the set, there uh, was a girl, probably about 14, who came to the front of the stage to sing her song. And it was Lay It on the Line. And, you know... She she was kind of slouched over, didn't seem to have a lot of self-confidence at first. So, you know, we, we weren't really sure what was going to happen. But when it got to, she started singing. And when it got to the big chorus, she started belting with so much power and energy and started stomping around the stage that everybody in the crowd who had been talking this whole time stopped and just were enthralled with uh, how she just totally owned the crowd and it was like a really memorable moment for me at Summerfest. And I just thought that was really cool because that for, for one, that is, it speaks to the power of that song and, you know, the lasting, you know, like, like you say in the book, evergreen, like it, it still connects with, with younger fans. Um, yeah. That, that's a lovely story to get to hear for sure. Yeah. Well, it makes me think, I wonder, um, have you ever had a moment where you've been in attendance for one of your songs either performed for you or maybe, you know, used in a piece of media for you, you know, something where your music was uh, presented with you in the audience that made you feel really good about it? Oh, yeah. Are you kidding? Like, count? I have, you know, dozens of stories of that, but... Uh... I mean, even recently, there was a, a, a video that was on YouTube, and a, a guy that I know, a friend of mine, Joel Huckster, was playing guitar on it, and I won't remember the girl singer, the woman singer, but it was a, a version of Laid on the Line, and she just killed it. She, it was so good when I saw it, you know, and it's, I, maybe it's, it, you feel a little guilty if your own song is giving you goosebumps, but it was, you know, her performance of it that had this kind of, so... You know, that that's a lovely thing. And, and there's a story in my book where, you know, as a surprise to me, my eldest daughter had put, put an arrangement together of a song called Let the Light Shine on Me from the 
Triumph Surveillance album. And when my other uh, twin daughters were in the, you know, the high school junior band, she was a senior, but she and she conducted uh, this arrangement that she'd written unbeknownst to me, rehearsed the junior band and they played the song. And I mean, you can imagine a junior band. It, there were a lot of squawks and squeaks and, and you know, uh, out of tuneness. And but it was, you know, to be sitting there in the auditorium and in my mind, I'm thinking this is like Mr. Holland's opus, except, you know, it's a real life version of it where it's real kids playing in real time. And, you know, part of my ears are going, whoa, <laughs> yeah. But my heart was just going, oh, my God, this is, you know, unbelievable. So it that was a really nice moment. I'm trying to think of others. There's been so many. Look, here's a story I used to tell. The song Midsummer's Daydream guitar piece. Yeah. Um, there's there was a video i don't know if it's still around but it was on youtube and it was one of the ones that had the most hits and there you know there's lots of ver versions on youtube of people playing that piece it was a fairly popular kind of thing and you don't need to be an amazing guitar player but you need to be a fairly competent one and then you sort of have to understand about the tuning with the drop d and then the harmonics and stuff and but once you kind of get your handle on that you can find your way into the song so there's lots of versions of it so a guy was in a kayak and he and he was literally and he had a little travel guitar and he was and he's and he was wearing one of these like hats that has a, a thing down the back to keep mosquitoes from biting the back of your neck. Yep. So, and, but he's got this backpack guitar and he's wearing this hat and he, he sets his phone and he goes, okay, um, no, I want to play. It's the middle of summer. I'm on my way to a folk festival at in the Yukon someplace or something, you know, and um, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm out in my kayak and. But I thought I would share, you know, Rick Emmett's Midsummer Daydream. And he plays and he plays a really good version of it. And then as he gets towards the end, he started makes this joke about, oh, oh I'm starting to tip. Oh, no. Oh, no. And he reaches out to turn off them, you know. Oh. Um, so but it, it, that was the thing that I was like, I went, oh, isn't that great? Like that you write a piece of music, uh, you hope that it might have an impact culturally, socially. You know, you don't know how far that impact might go, how, how deep it might reach, how long it might last, all of those kinds of things. But, you know, there's been a lot of gratifying moments when you realize, man, that music is out there and it, it it's like an energizer bunny. It keeps yeah. going. <laughs> oh, that's great. I got to see that video. That sounds, that sounds also uh, awesome and also hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty good. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 
and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's Factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. Well, you know, I remember a, a part of your book where you, you say that you don't enjoy hearing recordings of yourself and your, your own songs, you know, when you're playing them or singing them. Uh, so is is it, it must be much more gratifying to hear someone else present that uh, that material, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think anybody really necessarily enjoys. The other part of it is, you know, um, everybody has a capacity to listen to music and just enjoy it, just hear it and and enjoy it for what it is. And I mean, I taught music for, you know, 20 years. Sometimes you're hearing something and, you know, it's pretty hard to find something nice to say about it, you know, uh, or what you're doing is you're supposed to be listening with a critical kind of ear so that you will critique it. So you're kind of listening for, mm, you know, how might I 
uh, improve this or suggest that you might improve it. And certainly when you're listening to your own music, you're in that mode. You're going like, mm, is this, you know, ready for prime time? Is, is this good enough? You know, you're always doing that. So I think that makes it harder when it's your own stuff. But there is a side of you, you can kind of switch it over and you can go, look, I'm just listening to, you know, in, enjoy something. I was listening to a thing the other day because I'd made a recommendation to a friend of mine. Uh, I'd, I'd said, you know, this is right up your alley. I'd send him a link to something called Omagnum Mysterium. And it's a choir thing, but it, it's, it can also be done by brass. And it's just, and it, it, it's, I can't remember the name of the composer. It's like Lindestrom or something like that. Linda Strauss, something like that. I think L-I-N-D-E-R, something like that. Anyhow, um, there's lots of versions on it on, on YouTube. And I sent it to my friend. And when I listen to that, there's no, I'm not critical. I just, uh, you know, I just switch it all off and I just go, I'm going to just listen to this and enjoy this. You know, I find that with choral music, I, I can, you know, I can get there almost instantly. I can um, see that a very yeah. soothing nature to that. You know, it doesn't probably yeah. a lot of criticism. Do you feel, yeah. do you have similar feelings when it comes to, and I guess I asked this because you just put, put the book out, but uh, your own writing do you do you find yourself uh when and this could be for songwriting too like uh editing and re-examining and going over it again and again before you're totally sure or are you more comfortable um you know with, with not going overboard with that kind of stuff no i would say i am a meticulous editor and, oh, yeah. and you know to me i would often say in songwriting classes they shouldn't call it songwriting they should call it song rewriting because that's really what you do in order to you know get it to where it where it's ready for prime time you know yeah. where, where it's ready for the public to be able to enjoy it and share it and stuff um and certainly the writing of the book yeah it was a journey of uh you know self discovery on that level of you know when is something at a point where I'm ready to say, yeah, this is, I mean, even just to send it to my editor and say, <laughs> you know, I'm ready now for you to chew at it because, uh, but he, he, you know, Michael Holmes was my guy. He got back to me and he would say, you know, this is really good, Rick, but wow, you've done such a good job, you know, but I mean, I've been a writer all my life. I wrote for guitar player magazine for, you know, better part of a decade and a bit, you know, um, every month there had to be a column, you know? So that kind of teaches you a discipline of writing, you know, uh, and I'm talking about prose, the, you know, the written mm. word. Um, plus I'd written a book of poetry before I got to the memoir. So, and that's writing on a whole different level, but it's, it's not in the sense of, am I condensing and distilling to the point where it, this is saying exactly what I wanted to say with exactly the right words, which, you know, that's the, no matter what you're writing, that's the game, right? Like, yeah. It, 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 the format might be a different thing. Uh, you're, not, you're not aiming for the same thing when you're writing a, a magazine uh, article or column as you might be when you're writing, you know, chapters for a memoir. Nevertheless, you know, uh, being a writer is being a writer, you know. And um, I, I think I have it in my DNA, sort of. I think I'm really, it, it's, it's what makes me the happiest in a, in a creative way. Um, but you know, <laughs> never that, never all that happy, <laughs> you know, like you, it's always nice to go, mm, I think I can fix that. Have I, is there time to fix that? Can I, can I get another crack at it? 
Oh, that's funny. Well, you know, it, the book does show that you, even though this is, you know, your your first memoir, obviously, it, it shows that uh, you are not new to writing. You have, a you know, a long career of experience that really comes through in the pages. And I say that because uh, I'm, I'm a big rock memoir fan. I have a huge collection of, of various memoirs and autobiographies from uh, particularly mus- musical artists. And I love them, but the the issue with reading a lot of those books is that they often uh, become a bit formulaic, and they, there's a lot of trappings that a lot of them fall into. And I just have to commend you on this book that I can tell, for one, there's no ghostwriter here, uh, which is not always the case with other books. And yeah, no I can really appreciate that you didn't fall into like the chronological trap you know, or the name dropping for the sake of name dropping trap or, you know, the, the so on and so forth with the, the, the stuff you find commonly in these. So, you know, when it comes to this book, was this something that you you wrote all basically in a short period of time? Or was this something you had been working on for like years and years before honing it down? Uh, yeah, years and years. Um but let me just say thank you for the, the praise. I, you know, I really appreciate that. Um, and I, and I, you know, I take a certain uh, level of pride in the fact that uh, I did sort of not write the standard rock star, you know, uh, memoir, autobiography, biography, whatever, you know, uh, I was reaching for something different. So it's nice to get that recognized. Um One of the things that exists is a, a, a fan forum on, on my website. And people pay for the privilege of being able to send me emails and go, Rick, do you remember when you played that concert in Milwaukee and at the World Series of Rock in the stadium in 19, you know, whatever it was. And we did play there, by the way. Um, uh, and, and, you know, and I'll answer their question, you know. And so I said to my webmistress, Adrian Duncan, uh, there's a little plug for her. I, uh, can you please assemble all of the things that I've done? Just all I want is my answers, you know. Put it all in one file and send it to me so that I can, you know, have that as something as a resource material for the book. It was 5,000 single spaced pages. Wow. 5,000. 5, because it's been up there for a long time, you know. Yeah. And, and I'm in there pretty much every day. There's something to, you know, to answer a question or have a little conversation with somebody. Now, that took a lot of editing. I mean, a lot of editing. Because, you know. Most of it's not good, but it did provide. Here's the thing: it's like you realize, well, these are the questions. If you're a real fan of Rick Emmett, these are the things you want to know. So yeah. the the, the memoir is going to have to answer these, you know, these fundamental kinds of questions that keep getting asked over and over and over and over. Those kinds of questions. So then you kind of know, okay, well, at least a few of the chapters have got to really. Those are the nails that are sticking up. But <laughs> you better hammer those, you know. Um, yeah. So and of course. Uh, I have all of these songs that I've written all my life. So to be able to find the idea of, of, of putting epigraphs at the beginnings of chapters, I went, well, you know, I could probably pull a few of my own lyrics here and there, you know. Um, I did, they're not all that because there were some other things that, you know, are far more uh, sort of instructive or, or leading in terms of my life uh, chapters wise, you know. Uh, there was a quote from Hunter S. Thompson that I used because I used to, I used to write it on the board at the beginning of my music business classes at the beginning of the year. You know, the music business is a long, shallow plastic trench 
full of pimps and thieves, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and the way he ends it is like he goes, and there's also a negative side. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so and and I would say to students like this is important for you to understand. If you want a career in the music business, you really do have to kind of condition yourself to the point where you're going, okay, lots and lots of bad things about it, lots and lots of exploitation. And, you know, you're going to be a piece of, you know, meat in the meat market. You're going to be a cog in the gigantic machine. All of these, you know, metaphors and cliches. But you got to be able to smile and laugh and go, yeah, but I get to pick up an instrument every day. You know, I get to write songs, you know. So, you know, there has to be that side to it where you go, yeah, yeah, sure, you know, but uh, I'll accept it and I'll kind of laugh at it. I'll kind of have a, 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 a cynical side to myself where I protect myself, you know, I, I build a shell. So anyhow, um, I've, I've really wandered off of whatever the original question was, but that's that's fine. What what was the original question again? Oh, just uh, you know, if you if you if this was written, you know, over the course of a couple of months or 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 several years. Yeah. Well, so there you go. That that like the the Hunter S. Thompson thing. I, I had, you know, course curriculum from things that I taught, you know, for for decades at the college. You know, so, uh, and and there's you know, for those that haven't read the book yet, you know, there's a chapter about songwriting, and there's a chapter about music business, and there's a chapter about being a dad, and you know. Um, and, you know, I just want to touch on one more thing because you made me think of this when you were complimenting me, which thank you. Um, my daughter, Ashley, at one point, she said to me, oh, dad, you know, the, the story that you wrote in there is so sweet. And I thank you. And she says, what made you choose that one? And I said, well, darling, I could have picked, you know, I had a half a dozen for every and there's four kids. So, you know, that's 24 stories. I'm, I'm already on to my own new book there. You know, I, I can't do that. But I wanted to make sure that I. There was something, and it can't be necessarily about you. It has to be a story sort of about what you made me feel or made me, it has to be about me because the book's about me. How can I get more of me in there? So um, I said it, to her, you know, at that moment where you, you were meeting your this guy and I, and I got all the Clempton, you know, driving away and left you was standing there with this guy. And I realized, oh, something heavy duty is going on there. But as a writer, when I came up with the line, well, the universe filled me up and I started leaking. I went, oh, that's good writing. You know, I'm, I'm keeping that in the book, you know, and I'm not going to mess with that and I'm not going to rewrite it. In that moment, I just had that little inspirational thing and I wrote it and I went, okay. Because, you know, I've been a writer long enough in my life to recognize when you've got a moment, you know, what does Billy Joel say? Leave that tender moment alone, you know. Yeah. Well, that happens with uh, song or songwriting and musical recording, too, right? Like little accidents in the studio that just hit the exact right note that you might not have even been planning for. You know, exactly. That's, yeah. That's so yeah. cool yeah. To, to hear that, that, happy, that kind of thing happens in books, too. Happy accidents. Yeah. 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 Musicians love them. Yeah. Right. Cool. Well, OK. Well, well speaking of musicians, you know, this obviously your first memoir um, but you uh, have a lot of experience. Wait, you've said that twice now. It, am I going to have a second? Well, a lot, <laughs> I, a lot of a lot of rock stars do. A lot of celebrities do. They get into they, the first one sells really good, and they think, "Hmm, the last five years I've done some stuff," you know. But you're right. I know. I know. But Joseph, let me assure you, there is, there's only ever going to be the one. That's it, right there behind you. There's that's never the gonna, one. Yeah, that's the one. There's, 
There's not going to be a second. If if I'm going to write, I'm going to write something else now, you know, a collection of short stories. I had another guy interview me the other day and he said, I think you've got a novel in you, man. I think, you know, you, you're a good writer. You And I go, ooh, a novel. Like, that's a lot to, to, to bite into and to try and chew, you know. I like short stories. I think I could cut it because I'm a songwriter and songs are kind of like short stories in a way, you know, that you're carrying an idea through, you know, three acts in a very, three verses in a very short period of time, you know, like, I think I can do that, but man, a novel, I don't know, but I would rather sink my teeth into that than do another memoir. That's just taught me something. And that is, I'm not doing that again. You know, that's enough. (laughs) Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I was going to ask you if like a novel would might be in your future, but I guess if maybe the metaphor is like a short story, a short story is to a song with a, uh, a concept album is to a novel, you know, so maybe it's, you know, different, you know, a matter of scale. That, that's but. exactly true. Like a narrative thread that has to be carried over a much longer period of time. And in my life, I only ever tried one concept album. Right. Marco's Secret Songbook was the only one in my whole uh, discography. And it was one of the weakest selling of all wow. of the records <laughs> that I ever did. Because a concept album, it's a tough sell, you know, like it's hard to get people to, yeah, I'll sit down and listen to that for the next hour. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, well, there's a narrator too. Hey, oh, I don't really like your narrator. Well, that's too bad because there's 42 clips of him interspersed. In, yeah, so anyhow. Well, shoot, if you do decide to uh, write the great Canadian novel, uh, maybe Steve Howe will help on that project instead. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Well, were there were there other memoirs, maybe not necessarily from a musical artist, but were there other memoirs or books that, you know, you read while you were putting this project together that either gave you some guidance or some inspiration for really how you wanted to tell your story? Uh, yeah, for sure. You know, you mentioned that you've done a lot of reading of them, and, and so had I over, uh, you know, the course of uh, sort of as my as my touring life was winding down I started to be reading more of them and then of course once I was getting into it you know I went okay uh, so but I really like the Springsteen one because I think he wrote that one himself you know I and I think he was really trying to be um honest and truthful and and candid and all of the things that you know you hope when you pick up a book whereas you know Clapton's one when I read it I was really disappointed I felt it was you know kind of too veiled and and too you know I mean he's he's a gentleman even when he plays guitar he doesn't make weird ugly faces and stuff you know he's a contained kind of guy and so uh it didn't, didn't surprise me but as I've said in other interviews you know I learned more about Clapton from Ronnie Wood's biography <laughs> than, I, than I did from Clapton's you know I got more insight into who he really was and, and what those times were really like for him. He was, you know, and I, I had another guy in another interview say to me, well, you know, but Clapton's he had a lot of tragedy in his life and, and yeah. he's had a lot of bad things happen and, and I, and breakups and divorces and children that, you know, died in like horror, you know? Yeah. And I go, right, I get it. You know? And so that maybe that would be a situation where a guy goes, well, I don't want to do it. Give me a ghostwriter. And I'm only going to tell these stories. And I'm and when you ask me a question I don't like, I'm going to go, yeah, I don't like that question. I'm not going there, you know. Um, and I get that, you know, I, I get that. But um, 
you know, the, uh, there's been some sort of off the beaten path kinds of books that I like. Loudon Wainwright III wrote one that I thought was really good and was kind of fun and had a real good sense of humor. Uh, and he's the guy that's the dad of Rufus Wainwright. And, and uh, there's a girl singer, too, artist, uh, whose name is escaping me now. Oh, geez. Anyhow, um, his was his was pretty good. It was it was kind of weird and out there in, in, in a certain way. And I like that. Um, I'm just trying to remember, you know, the ones that I've re uh, read recently. The Frampton one was eh, OK. You know, it didn't really, it, I, you know, not to be beating them up too much in this podcast. But, but you know, we're going to mention Steve Howe again. When I read his, I went, it's kind of like he just took his day book and went, and then we were in Toledo and then we got on the bus and then we went to, the, and then, uh, you know, then we played this really great show. Then the next day I got on and going, what? Uh, I'm sorry, Steve, you know, this yeah. is, this isn't really doing it for me, but I, you know, and I mean, I love yes. You know, and, and I was a huge fan of it when I was a younger man, you know, um, but it, that, you know, that doesn't really do anything for me, you know, but it's, when it's just like a, clearly an exercise in, yeah, I'm going to put a book out, you know? Right. I mean, I think you can have a book where you include journal entries, but it, but but to recreate a, a journal, uh, that is limited appeal, you know? Did you read the Donald Fagan one where he was on the bus doing the tour with, um, oh man, I can't remember who he was. I think he was playing with uh, uh, a couple of those other bands from that era. Uh the, the the guy that uh oh I, i'm thinking bob welsh and that's not the guy uh who's the guy that w had the voice of lead over on to take that day in the morning who's that guy boz Skaggs. oh so he was doing yeah. with boz and then and he was just writing things in his journal sort of on the bus and it's great because he complains bitterly about you know, this generation that's they download stuff and they're all in their phones and, and like, and he's got inside kinds of uh, phrases and jokes. And like, I've always really admired Donald Fagan, you know, as an artist, as, you know, I, I, I have a feeling that he's probably not a great guy to hang with because you know, I think he does have some psychological problems, you know, um, which he's kind of a little bit candid about too, oh, sure. that he, got to be taking medications to control all of the issues that he's got and certainly he had drug problems you know when he was younger and um anyhow uh well, yeah, i really sort of reminds that. me that sort of reminds me of uh, i didn't read that one but i did read uh the book that crystal zivon put together about warren zivon uh after oh, yeah. he passed and that had a lot of warren's journal entries and it's kind of that same kind of thing, kind of snarky, very funny and candid. And like, yeah. that is very appealing. So, yeah. you know, I having a sense want... of humor is a big part. Oh, uh, yeah. And I want insight into that. I want insight into right. who is this person? Like, listening to music is one thing. Listening to, you know, whatever it is that they decide they're going to reveal in their songs. And sometimes it's pretty veiled. Like a guy like Donald Fagan, you know. You don't know how much of the character, this weird character that's, you know, I don't know. I've got, uh, I'm trying to think of some of his characters. You know, the guy that's got dynamite, he's going to blow up. <laughs> that was one of his first hits, you know. Oh, I got a case of dynamite. I could hold out here all night. Well, I lost my old man back in Oregon. Don't take me alive. Don't take me alive. You go, holy, 
you know, what a character for his song. And that's clearly not him, you know, right. but there's a little bit of him in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the words coming out of that character's mouth are words that Donald Fagan wrote. So, you know. Is, uh, is the Nightfly, is the Nightfly, that's Donald Fagan, right? Yeah, that's his album. That's his yeah, solo yeah. album. That's not but, the book. No, no, I know, but there's yeah. a song that kind of the same oh, kind of thing. Yeah. And that's very much him. That's a very autobiographical record. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan, so we could spend this whole podcast talking about him. Oh, sure. Hey, let's not. <laughs> well, I'm sure he would like that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no, instead, let's 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 talk about your band uh, for a second. This has been a curiosity of mine for a very long time. Uh, I know you don't sing lead vocals on it, but I'm a huge Joe Walsh fan. Rocky Mountain Way is one of my favorite songs. I like Trime's version quite a bit. Uh, well, can you just... What what was the idea of of putting that song on the record and why why of all tracks why that one? It was a bit. It was a song that we used to do when we were a bar band and we first started. It was in our set as a you know like a cover song and we had you know I don't know Hendrix tunes and we had a Deep Purple medley and we had two Led Zeppelin medleys. You know uh, we were pretty much a Led Zeppelin copy cover band when we were first getting bar band gigs and then and we got really hot in a hurry because uh you know bar owners were going led zeppelin well and it's good oh you know they couldn't wait to give us more money to come back you know um so but the yeah the joe walsh thing was one of the things that gil sang and so then we'd done our first album and then the record company was going okay you know let's get a second one going here and you go well geez we've been out gigging and touring we don't have a lot of material and then we were in this pre-production and just trying to write songs and you know we we didn't we didn't have enough, <laughs> and then like well, and then and Mike Levine was the producer of our albums at the time, their bass player, and he said, "Why don't we take a shot at Rocky Mountain Way? Like we could maybe get that to cross over to AM radio because it's, you know, if we did it so that it didn't have all you know the breakdown talk box thing in it, if it really just had the bang 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 and it had the the chord riff, you know, and we and we leaned on that." Yeah. Like maybe that would work, you know, and it did. It, it it crossed us over. We were able to jump from sort of being a, you know, uh, a, a, we were a concert act by then, but just barely. But now we were getting enough airplay that we could go across Canada and we could play, you know, the smaller arenas and oh. put on our big, you know, production with our lasers and our our, our propane torch and our, yeah, you know, anyhow, so... That was that was a that was a big thing and and it worked great for us you know uh, you know uh, yeah the, I, I like Joe too I think he's a fantastic you know and again that sense of humor thing right yes <laughs> yes probably yeah. one of the funniest songwriters did uh did you ever lay down a vocal track on that or was that always going to be Gil always going to be Gil yeah yeah and you know the the premise of the band was always sort of. 50-50, you know, the, there's going to be a Rick song, Gil song, Rick song, Gil song, and concert shows were going to kind of, you know, do pretty much that, and albums were pretty much going to kind of do that, you know. The the, the 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 catch came, the Just a Game album that it had Hold On and Lay It on the Line that had become pretty, you know, they'd kind of broken us at American Radio. And so now the record company and American Radio were both kind of going, no, we want the blonde guy to sing the song. So we, you know, to which the drummer was not that happy, you know. This was not the band that he, you know, uh, decided he wanted to be in and start and be the bleeder of. And 
you know, general manage and stuff. So, you know, that led to some issues inside the band and that over time eventually made it so like, okay, I, I got to go. <laughs> See you. I got to get out of there. You know, what's funny is I think some of those same kind of issues affected Joe when, when he was in his band, you know, with the Eagles. <laughs> I think it happens to every band in the end, you know, sure. at some point. Like, as I've said in many interviews, and I say in the book, you know, the Beatles were the most successful band in the history of the planet. And they broke up after 10 years. They, you know, they were having a hard time getting along with each other. They all had their own spouses and things now. And uh, some of them had their own kids. And they were going, yeah. Uh, Geez, I think I'd really like to make a solo album where I don't have to bounce my ideas off of you. you know? Right. Oh, oh boy. Uh, so moving ahead a little bit, um, a previous guest on this show is, was a guy named Ken Seisler, and he uh, directed the first five hours of the uh, debut broadcast of MTV. MT MTV is a topic I love talking about on the show. And I find it interesting that you guys put out, it was Allied Powers like a month before MTV debuted. And, and that's sort of, you know, you guys just about at the peak. And then this whole new revolutionary thing comes across and has a big impact on the music industry with MTV. Uh, when that was going on in the very early days, what was your initial reaction to MTV and the ideas behind it, you know, were you worried about it? Did you feel the band was up for doing videos or how did that impact you guys? Okay. So a really good question and a, and a great topic because it was instrumental for us on a couple of levels, but not quite what you've described. So here's the story that I love to tell. We were signed with RCA records and they're in New York and MTV was starting in New York. Now RCA, this is, Prior to this, we're, we had an album, Just a Game, where uh, RCA was in a, a fight. And this this gives people insight into the fact that, you know, you think music is a big business. You think music matters. You know, well, you know, it's a, it's a smaller cog in a much larger kind of, you know, world paradigm. And in RCA's case, they're going to make a lot more money if they can only win the uh, video cassette machine war with Sony. Sony's got Betamax and RCA's got VHS and, and it's RCA's v VHS format. So if they win the war, then everybody's going to have to license that VHS format off of them because they, it's proprietary. They own it. So they have a big stake in this and they're thinking, how can we win? You know, the American public is really where we want to fight this fight. So they go, I know we'll, we'll put a, 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 a VHS machine in every record store across the country. And we'll put a, one of our acts, you know, on, on, a, on a tape loop in there and, and it'll play. And everybody will be seeing this thing going, the marvel of this tape machine that's playing these things, you know, meanwhile with the RCA logo on it, brought to you by RCA, you know. So, they, and they probably have a meeting at their boardroom table and go, well, we still, we'll use Elvis. And they go, no, don't use Elvis. Like this has got to be hip. We, we, can't, we can't keep dating ourselves, you know. Right. So they go, well, and so Mike Levine, he sort of catches wind of this and goes, well, give us money and we'll shoot some videos. Uh, we'll go to a soundstage and we'll do a performance thing and, and we'll shoot some. So we had four songs, videos, and they were in the can and they were used for that. And it helped us. It, it, you know, it was, RCA really did kind of, you know, go to the wall for us in, in terms of marketing and promoting that record. And they did a great job. Um, so now MTV starts and MTV in its early stages 
they, there's no there's not enough videos nobody's made enough videos they're playing right. michael nesmith videos three times a day because they haven't got enough stuff you know a lot of rod stewart yeah so they're scrambling around and they're going you know what do we got and so rca is they're going well we have this bad triumph and they go okay well let's see it so there was a thing that happened when we shot the song lay it on the line where there was a camera that was shooting a close-up of me kind of you know like this as i'm singing but in the background a flash plot went off and so the the bulb of the camera just went wow like whited out and then came back and there's rick singing his song So it was a money shot. Yeah. Before there were money shots in rock videos, it was it was an unbelievable, you know, and MTV clipped it and used it in their bumper that was like, you're watching MTV. And, you know, here's a little clip from this guy doing something. Here's the, and here's a little clip of Rick Emmett with his shoulder strap off of his jumpsuit, you know, singing and bakaloom, he blows up and he comes back. So we were darlings of MTV uh, and... As you say, the Allied Forces album came down the pipe, but then we made videos for that and we saw them and we were horrified that the, <laughs> this guy had done this incredibly cheesy. Oh, no. oh yeah, because he'd done a thing, we called it birthday cakes in space, where it was a stage that was like a flying V guitar, and, but it was all shot with video, you know, take the color out and make the stars go shooting past and uh, you know all this stuff and uh, get a machine to blow rick's hair and it, it looked bad and we went oh we got to bury those things you know and we did the best we could <laughs> have you seen the triumph documentary banger i have films? No, okay but... so banger films did the documentary and one of the things they do is they have a, like a laptop and they put it in front of a guy like say sebastian bach and they go hey and because he's a triumph fan right and yeah. they go hey sebastian you ever seen this and he's sitting there's going i've never seen this what is this? Oh my God, you know, there's a chick, she's lying in a bed. She, there's a spaceship flying into her bedroom, you know. They got the trailer park boys, you know. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, talking about, well, they're watching the video and going, oh man, what is this shit, you know. So anyhow, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny, you know. Um, and you, you have to laugh at yourself. Okay, so now, sorry, this is, I'm going on here, but, you know, to answer your question, as MTV uh, evolved and grew, I really hated it. And I think the other guys in the band did too. We just hated the idea of an image was was going to be assigned to a song and it was going to be sort of imprinted in someone's head. They, the, the whole thing of somebody's personal imagination being able to pick their own story for whatever song they're listening to. MTV changed the nature of that in a big way. Plus, it was taking playlists that existed in the real world and oh, narrowing them way down, you know. And then it was making it so that it was turning the world into Duran Duran stuff, you know, guys that are wearing makeup and chasing models through the jungle, you know, and right. you're going, okay, what's what's this? You know, what does this get to do with music, you know? Uh, now, having said that, you know, uh, they did Prince concerts in the early days. They did a Triumph concert. Uh, and certainly there were artists like Peter Gabriel uh, that did things in those early days that were interesting and they were clever and they were art. They were good, you know. Yeah, yeah, Tommy um, Heads, another one. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, the, the, I think the Dire Straits Money for Nothing one oh, was, yeah. 
one of the first times they sort of had a computer doing animation yeah. and it was but the song again had the sense of humor like you know guys that are moving refrigerators for a living <laughs> who are now you know uh, uh critiquing videos they're watching <laughs> on the tvs in the show like and i went okay that's that's pretty good you know yeah. it, but by and large you know after a while i was going i just i want we'll just do concert videos you know come on let's let's be like springsteen and let's really just you know be honest here well there's one i wanted to ask you about and i wonder if it was kind of made as a result of some of this frustration and disillusionment with mtv uh the never say never uh video from the the later half of the 80s uh with like uh there's that like alien boss figure and the, the the girls running all around the set i mean i hope this isn't too embarrassing of a memory but uh it's strikingly visual it's, it's a fun watch but like what what did how did that video uh come to fruition if you were wanting to do more performance videos i i had almost nothing to do with the formulation of stuff uh, at that point other than Gil was kind of the executive producer of these things, and he would have meetings with Don Allen, and Don Allen was our guy that, that okay. did it. And, uh, you know, Don, I think, uh, had be, was able to get the set from some science fiction kind of TV show that was being shot. So oh. it had all of these different kinds of, you know, apocalyptic kinds of things, and it was like, okay, and we're going to dress the band this way and we'll get the we'll make your hair huge for mtv and you know all of these kinds of things um i think probably i said well if you're going to do that you know the the album cover had this helmet guy right. which that had grown out of the never surrender cover where there had been a guy in a sort of a centurion helmet with a uh a, a, a spike down between his eyes but he had these eyes inside this you know helmet and then it was like Hey, let's update that the helmet guy. We'll have him come back on the cover of uh, the surveillance album. And so then this idea of surveillance, oh, it'll be like someone's always watching you. And so the video sort of became about the helmet guy was watching the chicks running around and the band was playing on and it was like it, it made no sense to me, you know. And they were all they were big on this moment where they were gonna run a sled down a, a lighted uh you know, hallway kind of. But it was going to make it look like it was some sort of, uh, you know, roller coaster thingy, space mountain, but happening at, at, you know, light speed or something, you know. And then when it happened, it was all of about, I don't know, four seconds in the video or six <laughs> seconds or something. And you kind of go, man, all of that free cell that we... You gave us, and that's what it is. That's it. The camera's kind of jiggling, and the thing's going down. And you go, that's it. That that. You you put a guy in a in a shopping cart, and you pushed him down this you know column of light. You know, okay, you know, whatever. You know, and that was a far was the cry from the, the happy accident of your early video with the flashbulb behind you. You know, that's that's the difference between a yeah a nice thing that happens and 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 over construction, I guess. And the other thing is that, uh, you know, I had now been in the music business for, you know, and I'm talking about a, a record contract that I signed that said I was a recording artist, you know. Right. So now that I've been in for about, uh, let me think about it, do the math, 12 years, you know, yeah. 11, 12. And I'm kind of thinking, look, 
I got into this because I like music and I'm a musician, you know, and this, this is the story of my life. And so these stories where we've got, you know, science fiction and fashion models and, you know, we've got to spend some time in hair and makeup. And like, I don't think any of us, the three guys in Triumph were keen on it on any level, you know, except for the fact like, well, okay, it's our song and we have to market and promote our songs, you know, our, our records. We, we, you know, we're under contract to do this. So we have to play this game, but we, none of us enjoyed it. You know, it's yeah. like, and I think there are some guys that do like, I, you know, your David Bowie, Peter Gabriel kinds of guys. I think they, they savor the challenge, you know, they go, Oh, this will be great. You know, but we weren't really a, we were, from a visual point of view, it was more like, hey, we want to stand in a laser cone and then blow off some flash pots, and, you know, and then have 147 lights turn green all at once, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, a, a little overproduction, but. Um... Yeah, but it's old school, right? It, that was the thing that existed visually before there was MTV. Oh, right. Yeah, that's true. Well, let's talk about another uh, big event in the 80s. And I know this is something you've talked about at length before, but it's such a topic that's it's so interesting to me because it was really a big moment in classic rock history. And you could probably guess I'm going to ask you about the US Festival, 1983. You were on Heavy Metal Day, along with Quiet Riot, Motley Crue, Ozzy, Judas Priest, Scorpions, and the Mighty Van Halen. Uh, you know... Can you share some of your memories of that day? And and wh what would you say the vibe was when you're on a lineup like that and a, such a big audience? Is there like a competitive kind of vibe or is it a party atmosphere or what do you remember? Um, well, I'm going to give you context. You know, okay. first of all, that summer we played a lot of outdoor stadium shows where we were up the bill. We were actually kind of making a lot of money. And the night before we played the US Festival, we played in, I think it was Orlando, uh, on a ZZ Top outdoor show. And uh, we did the Rose Bowl uh, up from Journey. Journey played a bunch of outdoor shows up in the stadiums up the West Coast. Uh, and I played the uh, Texas World Music Festival uh, with Sammy Hagar and Ted Nugent. And Styx was the headliner. And we did Dallas and Houston back to back. Was and that when they were doing the Mr. Roboto Kilroy was here thing? Oh, it boy. Was. Exactly. And uh, in truth, like, the, so in that, in, on that day, you'd had Ted, Triumph, uh, uh, Sammy, and then Tommy Shaw of Sticks said to Dennis, we can't go out there and do this Roboto thing. Like, please don't. Let's let's play the heavy stuff. Let's do you know Blue Collar Man and let's, and Dennis is going. No, no, we're doing the Broadway thing. Oh, and boy. so the audience was just walking out of the stadiums in droves once Sticks went on. And I think it made Tommy literally sort of throw his guitar down on the stage and quit the yeah. band. And if I think the second night, um, anyways. So that's the context. We, we were already doing these things. So. And the night before we fly in, we catch a nap. You get up, you have something to eat. You get in an air helicopter and you fly over to the US Festival. And you're, you're flying over all these people and are going, what the hell is this? You know, I, I had no idea it was going to be like this. You, you did know there were going to be all these bands during the day, but we were playing in the daylight. Now, if you play outdoor shows, you know, if you're playing in the afternoon in the daylight, like just get out there, you know, hammer. Like we did, none of our lights, none of our effects, nothing. You just play your songs and get the hell out, you know? And 
your intro to this, you said the mighty Van Halen. You could have said that about any of those bands at that time. The mighty Judas Priest, the 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 mighty Motley Crue. Like they were all big and they were all big in their own way. And some of them were bigger on the West Coast than other guys, you know. Um, well, some so, were just but, starting out. That's that's what's interesting. Motley Crue only had like a one or two records at that point. Yeah, but anyway, I know. I, I get your point. Yep. Still, for a day like that, those yeah. were the right triumph. What was Triumph doing here? They were the outlier. And the outlier was that Steve Wozniak liked us. And it was his money. <laughs> like, <Right. laughs> the one that was throwing this festival thing. There was a country day. There was a, a new age day or new wave day or whatever. And, and, you know, but Steve liked hard rock music too, you know, or yeah. somebody talked him into it. Who knows? But he liked Triumph songs. He liked that sort of positive, hey, you know, hold on to your dreams, uh, the magic power of the music. Like he totally dug it, you know? So we were kind of his band. So we kind of had, it wasn't cockiness, but there was a kind like, I don't know if you've seen the thing, but he literally introduced us. Gil walks him out to the front of the stage and Wozniak picks up a mic and goes, oh, we love him, we love him please welcome Triumph. He's not very good at being an MC, you know, but it was the first time he'd ever done it, you know? And it's kind of, that was pretty cool. The guys who, whose money was paying for all of this was going to be our MC and introduce us. So we were kind of like, yeah. And and finally, I'll say this, you know, um, I happened to have a good day. Some days, some shows not so good, but that day I was kind of on. I liked the sound of the amp, the rented Marshall I had. You know, my guitar sounded really good in the monitors and stuff. I was going, okay, you know, I'm, I'm ready to, you know, hammer it and, and, I, and I sang pretty good that day and of course there were cameras and so the legacy of the US Festival was kind of triumphs to claim because we said to Wozniak and everybody hey can we have the footage and, and make our own like DVD out of it oh yeah sure you go ahead and all the other acts were kind of going no we don't want that stuff we, we're trying to bury that we, yeah. yeah that's kind of interesting is because like a lot of bands did not bring their AA a game to that event i mean i know that like i love van halen but diamond dave was obliterated during his set so Indeed. here's a question i know that day was like that whole weekend was like insanely hot do you remember it being brutally hot and how did how did you just deal with the heat it wasn't just hot it was also that uh, the so many people the vegetation such as it was the scrub of the desert had been it, now it was just nothing but dust and so if the wind blew, if the people were moving anywhere, up came these the particulate and it was in the air. Never mind that. How much uh, grass and hash was being smoked, the, there was that particulate in the air. And so you ran up and down the stage a couple of times and you felt like, oh, like, you, you know, like I, I'm in a I'm in a Hopi smoke <laughs> TP here like <laughs> this is crazy it was really hard to catch your breath yeah. and it was it was hard. and i think that it was also the santa Ana winds had kind of come along and been blowing all of this stuff into the like the, the the venue itself was sort of surrounded by hills and mountains so it was all getting trapped in this little bowl of a place where it wasn't so little it was holding anywhere from 250 to 400,000 people uh, depending on how much dope you'd smoked to do your <laughs> your eyeball right might be seeing doubles <laughs> yeah exactly but uh 
yeah, and of course it's the heavy metal day, so there's going to be some hype going on <laughs> from from many camps, you oh, know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's Anyways, bring it back to the book for a second because yeah, you wrote about the Yus Festival. Um, it, you include it in a list of some of your all-time favorite gigs in the book, and this is one of one of the reasons why I really enjoyed this book is that I think you were talking about it earlier. You pre Pre, um, preemptively answered, I think, a lot of questions. You know, typical questions I like to ask are like, well, what are your favorite gig memories? And you line them up in a really nice way. And then there's another part in the book where you share some of your road horror stories, some of which are absolutely hysterical. So before we get out of here, of, of your horror stories, we talked about a great event. Let's talk about maybe one that didn't go so well. What what one makes you look back and just kind of laugh the most? Okay. Well, I don't want to tell one that's in the book. Okay, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's one in the book about, you know, a, a guitar clinic that I did in a grocery store. You yes. Know? Yeah. And, yeah, you we'll know, save that one for the Probably book. the worst gig of my life kind of story. And here's the thing, too, you know, like, I could probably write a book just about my horror stories. You know, because there's so many. This is like stories about my kids, right? And eventually you just, you're picking highlights, right? So there's one that didn't make the book, but I'm going to tell you the story because, and I've told this story many times, radio interviews and stuff, but, um, and I, the the venue, I keep changing it. So, and I can't remember where it was. It was either Philly or Baltimore or Towson State. It, it was someplace on the East Coast, you know, okay. somewhere in Washington, somewhere in that, you know, nexus. And, um, and I had, okay, so uh, I had this kind of new blue T-shirt, cut off sleeves, but it was kind of long. And I had these, you know, this was the Allied Forces era. I had these white pants that I'd had a tailor stitch the pockets closed, and they were skin tight. You kind of you had to lie down to get them on, you know. Oh. Uh, yeah, they were tight. And I had the white flying V, right? So, the, and the show would start, and... Boom, 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 boom. We blow off a bunch of flashpots and we come roaring down these you know, right out to the front of the stage. And it was like, take my picture. I'm a rock star, you know, sp spread, spread legs. And, and so the, the audience would immediately be sort of up on their chairs, you know, screaming and yelling. And, and, and uh, it was designed to make that happen. Right. The energy was just off the top was crazy. But there was a gaggle of girls that had come right to the barricade at the front in front of me. And they were screaming. They had an extra kind of intensity about the way they were screaming at me right and i'm thinking yeah okay you know and you know running around the stage but coming back to these girls and every time i came back they were just leaning over and screaming at me right and so i'm thinking i, I am awesome you know i am i am a rock star this is a great you know and so but the song ends and then the the next song is going to start but it starts right away with a kick drum going boom boom Boom, setting up the tempo for the next, like no dead air at the beginning of a triumph show for at least four or five songs, because you're just going to start the thing down the hill, you know, and it's going to pick up momentum. And so, but it's it's kind of, there's enough of a space that I can hear them yelling now as I'm standing at the front of the stage and, you know, getting everybody to put their fists in the air, right? And and I can hear them, and one of them, finally, I can, I'm leaning over and going, what are you saying? And she's going, your fly is down <laughs> and i looked down oh, and the buddy. oh buddy this is gonna get better the zipper has exploded the pants were so tight that the zipper has just exploded but the blue t-shirt that i it was it was kind of long and i tucked it in 
it's sticking out of my the the broken fly <laughs> like an origami penis. <laughs> like it's just so I've been running around <laughs> with this, and I got a white guitar, I got white pants, I got a blue flag. <laughs> and you know, it, like what can you do, right? You it's the most embarrassing thing that could possibly happen. And you know, seventeen thousand people have witnessed this. You know, so you know, I got running back. Like I can't. This is the beginning of the show. I can't go and change my pants. Right. So the yeah, road, okay. the roadies had to get out duct tape, which is this is a very Canadian thing, and create a a, a gray cod piece for me. <laughs> you know, on the front of my pants until we get to the drum solo in the middle of the show. So that was one of life's most embarrassing moments. And the thing that I like to, and I would tell this story, by the way, when I would do motivational speaking things sometimes in high schools, because I would say to kids, I know sometimes your worst enemy is yourself. You know, you're afraid. You're afraid of, you know, what, how you look and, and, and what you've said, and you know. But I want you to remember this story and remember that I did this thing. It was the most embarrassing thing I could also, I could ever do. And I, I survived. You know, yeah. the next day the sun came up and the, and I had to go play another gig and, you know, I had to go get a new pair of pants. But essentially, you know, like that was it. It's not going to kill you, you know. So that was kind of. Yeah, that's the story. Well, I hope you sent those pants to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame where they should be displayed from now on. <laughs> no, uh, I think they went into the garbage. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I got to cut this short, Joseph. We've been going a long time here. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, you're right. Let's yeah. uh, let, let's call it here. Uh, uh, just one last easy one. Halloween is here. This is going to go up on Halloween. What's one of your favorite songs to hear around the Halloween season? It could be one of yours. It could be anything. Wow. Um, okay, I'm going to tell you a little story. I have oh, one full okay. story. You got me on story mode. Um, there's a friend of mine named Blair Packham. And Blair uh, had a band in Canada called The Jitters. And he and, and, and he and I, we worked on a song studio kind of uh, songwriting workshop together. And I love Blair deeply. And he once wrote a song uh, that was called One Hit Wonder. And it was because he had been in Florida one time and he had seen... Uh, Bobby Boris Pickett oh, playing okay. in, in a mall, like in a mall parking lot. And, and he really only ever had this song, you know, uh, you do the monster mash, you do the mash, it was a graveyard smash. you know. And, but Blair's song was kind of about somebody saying like, oh, you know, what a lousy thing that, you know, this guy, what, what a sad situation. And Blair's song was kind of going, yeah, well, you know, at least he had one. Yeah, he's a one hit wonder, but at least and that was kind of the hook of his song was a one hit wonder but he had one you know so i don't know if you can track that song down or not to play it but if you can't just play the the bobby boris a little bit of the bobby boris because it's good you know the monster mesh is it's classic but if you can track down blair's tune i think that would be a really cool thing to play absolutely i will do that and i'll post it uh on our social media too rick this has been so much fun talking to you i love your stories 
A-plus book. Congrats on it. Thank uh, you. I'd love to talk to you again anytime. But uh, yeah, best of luck to you with the book. And thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the big four things you can do to support this show that don't cost a dime. Number one, listen to the show. If you're hearing this now, that means you did this part already. Thank you. There is an infinite amount of content out there, so you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means a great deal to me. Number two, if you like what we did here, please recommend this show to family, friends, or anyone you know who's looking for a podcast, particularly about music. Share our links in Facebook groups, subreddits, and recommendation threads. Whatever you can do is highly appreciated on my end. Number three, find us on social media. Follow us on Twitter at PlayThatPodcast. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash PlayThatPodcast. And subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash C slash PlayThatRockNRoll. Lots of great material, like photos and vlogs, on all three platforms, as Play That Rock and Roll is very much meant to be a content hub as well as a podcast. And finally, the big ask. Number four, please give us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I know this part is a hassle, but it really does help the show a great deal. Not just because it affects the algorithm, but also because it gives me something I can point to when pitching this show to potential guests. The more social media followers and positive ratings the show has, the better chance I have for booking high-profile guests for interviews. So if you take a moment to give us even just a five-star rating, you are actively giving us a tool to do bigger and better things here. But whatever the case, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here and play that rock and roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great stories and music from the world of classic rock. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts 
or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.